0: Hi, Harry here. Just with a quick note about our Patreon site. It's for subscribers, so there is a small monthly fee, but there's really a wealth of original material there, one-on-one discussions with experts about really cutting-edge topics. Just in the last few days, we've dropped discussions about the Bill Barr memo or the Harvard admissions case that might be the vehicle for the Supreme Court to rewrite affirmative action, or the letter from AUSA's protesting against Bill Barr, or the national security implications of Barr's dragging his feet on the transition. Just check it out at patreon.com talkingfeds. That's patreon.com slash talkingfeds. See what there is to see, and you can decide if you want to subscribe after you've looked at the offerings there. Okay, here's our episode. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It's a measure of the degradation of our democracy during the Trump years that notwithstanding a decisive Biden victory, a large percentage of the electorate feels uncertain about who will be president come January. President Trump has launched a litigation campaign that for the most part doesn't even allege and in no way begins to demonstrate the sort of irregularities that would call Biden's election into question. That part is common ground, yet somehow there are nagging doubts that he can pull off what in essence would be a coup and the end of American democracy. Quite apart from his quixotic effort to overturn the election, Trump signaled that he will go out in Trumpian style, firing his defense attorney, Mark Esper, in a tweet for questioning his use of active duty troops to quell street protests, and then replacing top Pentagon officials with more Trump loyalists. He seems to all but have abandoned his public duties. He stayed mostly out of sight this week behind a wall of tweets, even as the country was breaking records in new virus cases and hospitalizations on a virtual daily basis, spiking to 160,000 daily cases by week's end and raising discussions of lockdowns across the country. Joe Biden, meanwhile, seems unfazed by Trump's stonewalling and petty antics. He is going ahead with the work of the transition, beginning with two important moves. The selection of a coronavirus task force heavy on science and the sort of expertise Trump has shunned, and the selection of longtime confidant and Washington insider Ron Klain to be his chief of staff. These early post-election moves provide important indications about the governing strategies of the Biden administration and the Senate Republicans and the role Trump intends to play in exile. To explore these issues and also take a closer look at important aspects of the election returns, we have three Superb guests. They are Peter Baker. Peter's been the chief White House correspondent for the New York Times since 2008. He's covered four presidents over his career at the Times and the Washington Post. He's the author of six books, including the recent The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III, co-written with his wife, Susan Glasser, and a really terrific read about not just Baker, but Washington in those now healthy and seeming days. Bakers won all three major awards dedicated to White House reporting, the George R. Ford Prize for Distinguished Coverage of the Presidency, the Aldo Beckman Memorial Award and the Merriman Smith Memorial Award. He's also a political analyst for MSNBC and a regular panelist on PBS's Washington Week. Thank you very much, Peter, for being here. Thanks for having me. Laura Jarrett. Laura is the anchor of CNN's Early Start. Since joining CNN in 2016, after a very successful but brief legal career in private practice, she's focused on the Justice Department and many high-profile legal issues there. Laura, thanks for coming, as always. Thanks
1: for having me, as always.
0: And Robert Rabin, the founder and president of the Raven Group, a progressive public policy firm. He was assistant attorney general at the Department of Justice under former President Bill Clinton, where we first met and worked extensively on Capitol Hill, cutting his teeth with Representative Barney Frank and serving seven hard-fought terms, I would say, on the House Judiciary Committee. Robert Raven, thanks for being here.
2: Thank you for having me,
3: Harry.
0: So let's start with the Trump holdout here. You know, it's, it's on the one hand unprecedented, yet it seemed almost predictable, this kind of giant sulk by the president. The question on everyone's mind, sad to say, is, is there any possibility that he can reverse the result of the election? And as Pompeo among others, has predicted transition to a second Trump term?
4: Short answer, no. Highly unlikely. (laughs) Well, the longer answer is that there's no allegation out there that would reverse the election. I mean, short of something extra constitutional, there is no legal challenge that would prompt any court to reverse tens of thousands of votes in three or more states. I mean, remember, we talked about the Florida 2000 as if that was a precedent for this. It's really a different situation. You had there one state that made all the difference. One way or the other, whoever won that state would win the presidency. And in the end, on election night, there was a difference of 1,700 and some votes. By the end of the machine recount, it was 300 and some votes, 350 some votes. What that meant is Al Gore had a plausible argument to make that he could perhaps have 350 more votes after that machine recount and then win the state and win the presidency. Here, you'd have to switch 50, what, 253,000 votes in Pennsylvania alone. Not going to happen, never happened. And again, as you point out, the in the introduction, there is no allegation of any widespread fraud other than just simply saying it. There is no actual specific allegation out there on which you could hang such an outcome on.
0: All right. But you said short of extra constitutional, which would normally answer it, but not necessarily in the Trump years. What about some raw power play by state legislatures or secretaries of state?
2: Yeah, that's the more salient political piece, which is the states most likely to help him, sort of the, the conservative or Republican political establishment in Georgia and Arizona, don't seem to be doing what many of us predicted could happen. So people who did scenario planning about all the awful things that we were on track to see, and praise God, many of them we haven't seen with foreign interference and outright corruption of, of ballots. But you're not seeing Republican officials in states that could make moves to appoint parallel electors or say this is an outrage or talk about fraud, you're only seeing U.S. Attorney General Barr do it, but you're not seeing Republican officials in the states do it where it matters.
1: But you're also seeing Republicans in positions of power, like in Georgia and even in Philadelphia, pushing back strongly against Trump's baseless claims, right? Think about Al Schmidt going on 60 Minutes saying his office is getting death threats, for God's sakes. I mean, this is not somebody who is some sort of flaming liberal. This is somebody who could be couching things in the way that we're hearing from Republicans in Washington, but the folks on the grounds in the states are not doing that. And also to Peter's point about the court cases, the bifurcation, bizarre world of what's going on between what Trump is saying on Twitter and what his lawyers are saying in court is like night and day. The court cases are not about fraud, by and large. Now, every day Rudy Giuliani says, oh, there's a new case coming or we found some new affidavit. By and large, the cases were largely about poll workers not being able to observe the ballot counting or they didn't have the right distance because of COVID. And in a few cases, the judges threw them out of court. I listened to one case in Michigan where the judge literally said, all you have here is hearsay and dismissed it. So the judges are able to see through what's happening here. But I wonder if the president has actually read his legal filings sometimes, because the court cases bear no resemblance to anything that he and his allies have been putting out on Fox.
4: He's been told in the last few days to stop using the F word, stop saying fraud and use rigged. You can say rigged according to this logic in the White House because rigged is not an illegal term. It's not a specific allegation that you would have to prove because there is no such thing as rigged in an election law context.
0: Yeah, I think it was 0 for 12, but more more notably, every single case failed even to allege a Florida-type scenario. Now, some lawyer somewhere has tumbled to it. So the latest allegation in Pennsylvania is that there is an equal protection violation in what? In the two-tiered system, some people do mail-in ballots, some people do in-person ballots. That's actually all they could reach for to try to get something that would be all-encompassing. A
4: policy disagreement,
0: not a fraud disagreement, not a corruption, which is what the president is saying. And if
4: you, and if you invalidate mail-in voting because of an equal protection argument, you're invalidating many elections going back all the way to the Civil War. I mean, we've had mail-in balloting since the Civil War.
0: And not to mention all of the ones in this very term. I get the sense also that the Republicans are winking and signaling that they're humoring him and let it just go a little bit longer. Of course, that's, you know, in its own way, pretty pernicious. But there's a downside to the pretense that the election isn't settled.
1: But don't you also wonder, like, why are they so afraid of him? He lost. Still, yeah, why are they so
0: afraid? Who is this guy?
1: (laughs) I wondered about that a lot this week, and I think I I got my answer from Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham basically said, the writing's on the wall here, it's about Georgia. And if it were not for this runoff in Georgia, we might see Mitch McConnell ditch him sooner, we might see other Republicans in leadership ditch him sooner, but because they have this race that's gonna change the balance of the Senate, potentially, if the Democrats win back those two seats, I think that it's changed the dynamic for them on the ground and they feel the need to still galvanize supporters. They feel the need to not brush past the the president's wildly popular base. And I think they're worried that if they do anything to anger him and to bruise his ego even more, it would hurt them come January.
4: And he got 48% or whatever the final number will be of the vote. He got 5 million, again, whatever the final number will be, more votes than he got four years ago. So if you're a Republican, you're looking at somebody who commands the loyalty of the party unlike any other Republican figure, even in a defeat. He's not repudiated or doesn't feel repudiated or doesn't seem to be repudiated from the Republican perspective in the way that George H.W. Bush or Jimmy Carter or other one-term presidents who were defeated were. He's going to continue to be a force. And it may not be that he can run again in 2024 or anything like that, but it it doesn't mean that they can afford to, from their point of view, to anger him unnecessarily.
0: I guess that's right, because the one thing he can do, even if he's not a likely nominee in a couple years, he certainly has shown himself willing to cancel politicians, right? Anyone who crosses him, he will be unabashed about doing that. But I think Laura's point is when you hear people whispering, Why are you doing this? that's what they say. They need to keep the base energized for Georgia.
1: But this idea that It it doesn't have a cost, right? Let's give him a minute to lick his wounds. The 9-11 report finds that the messed up transition is part of the reason we missed the ball on that, right? So there's actually there is a cost to this. There is a tangible downside to letting his ego ride the day.
0: I totally agree. Among other costs, I'm sure you guys have been doing the same in the last week, talking to people who are really engaged, thoughtful voters, and they really don't know if he's going to somehow pull it off. They're jumpy from the past. That's the, sort of the same as saying they don't know if we still live in a democracy. That's a real tangible cost, I think. R- Robert, you're giving me a kind of a jaundiced uh, no here.
2: It's a personal business, and it's very, very hard for most people who are unmedicated and untherapized to say to their peers, hey, it's time to go. We're having a hard time doing that with Senator Feinstein on the left. It's hard. It's a personal business, and people don't like saying tough things to people. But the other thing you're seeing is, you know, the Vichy government didn't dismantle itself either. That people have been on a power gravy train for three and a half, four years, McConnell being the lead of that. They've gotten some unbelievable judicial wins out of it, and they don't want to stop it. And there could be things that happen in the next 30 days. They're continuing to run judges through the Senate. I don't know that I would want to stop that either.
0: They now want to have a confirmed Department of Homeland Security, having not had it for most of their tenure, right?
2: I think mostly it's about not wanting to poke a bear who has shown a willingness to say demonstrably horrible things about you over and over and over again. And it's extremely damaging. 95, 96 percent of Republican voters vote for Trump.
0: And one other point about this Trump campaign is he's again leveraging his cronies in government. You have Pompeo. I don't even know what you make of that kind of smirking statement. But then the Bill Barr memo to the field that was taken broadly as a signal that maybe DOJ is going to march in in a heavy booted way and at least support the notion that there's fraud afoot. Any, any thoughts about what Barr's doing here?
4: Well, I thought your your column, first of all, in the LA Times today was super interesting about the consequences of it and what it actually added up to. I had not recognized early on that he was actually overturning a longstanding policy of no federal investigations between the election and the certifications, which is really interesting to me and explains the resignation of the elections chief clearer way than I had understood before. I tend to think that what Barr thinks he was doing was to placate the president without actually in his mind, doing anything of any genuine consequence. Because the caveat that he put in the order, which is that they could investigate fraud on such a level that it would actually overturn the election in a state, is such a high bar, you would think, because there, are, there is no such allegation out there that would do that, that my guess is he's saying, well, I can tell the president I, I'm going to investigate any fraud if there's any out there. But in fact, he's telling U.S. attorneys, you can only do it if there's really something genuinely big. And there isn't anything genuinely big. But as you say, there are consequences that go beyond this next couple of weeks.
1: I agree that it's toothless in action as Harry writes but that it was it was done for a purpose and it was done for a reason and it was done in a way that was so disturbing that the chief of election crimes had to step down because he felt like he couldn't do his job with a level of integrity that he was comfortable with given this long standing policy a 40 years policy was overturned and it reminded me so much of the situation Surrounding Roger Stone, because a DOJ official told one of my colleagues about this that Barr wasn't asked by anybody to do it, and every time they say things like that, it's just so clear like he doesn't have to be asked to do it. He knows exactly what the president wants him to do because the president tells him every day on Twitter what to do. The only thing that he hasn't done that the president really wants is to come after Obama, Biden, Comey. Those are the you know the high dollar figures that Barr has not gone after that is created such a situation that the president is disappointed in his performance. But the memo really makes it clear, I think, that this was for show because the cases that have been brought so far do not impact the vote totals and they have to impact the vote totals in order to be brought before certification. And so really nothing is going to change on the ground. And I think U.S. attorneys in the field know that U.S. attorneys in the field saw exactly what this was.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Attorney General. If I can bring you the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West, I'll be right in court. It's not as if this happened to be the policy and he shifted it. This is the very core of the policy that you do not want the federal government mucking around precisely between election and certification, lest they look as if they're putting a thumb on the scale for the incumbent. That's the very reason we have it. All right. Laura called this a bit of the bizarro government. Let's go back to the, the real emerging government now and what we've seen of Biden as he begins to exercise the powers that will move to him on January 20th. His two big moves seem like the antithesis of Trump. This task force is full of exactly the kind of experts that Trump has not just shunned, but disparaged. And then Ron Klain, you know, he, he probably he would have m- maybe been the choice in any event, but a competent Washington guy. Does it tell you anything in particular about how Biden's going to govern or given Ron's very long and close relationship with Biden, he went directly from a clerkship that we did the same year to chair of Biden's Judiciary Committee at like age 29. It was it pretty much a foregone conclusion that he was going to get the nod?
4: I think it's likely Klein would have been the choice no matter what. He brings a lot to the table, decades of experience with Biden going back to his days on the Hill. He was his vice presidential chief of staff. He was a candidate for chief of staff under Obama. So, you know, everybody sort of thought of Ron as a chief of staff and waiting for years. And what Ron Klain's choice tells us as well is it's it's a back to sort of more normal mode in Washington. Everybody in Washington knows who Ron Klain is. If they don't know him personally, yeah. they know who he is. Republicans and Democrats respect him. Obviously, I would think Republicans think of him as a partisan. And obviously, he wouldn't be there cup of tea, but they don't. I've never heard anybody say anything bad about him. I think that he's got a widespread respect because he's been here for a long time. And that's the opposite of the Trump people who came in, sort of pulling together an administration out of bits and parts, and people who had no experience in Washington whatsoever, had no idea how the place worked, and a few people who did. And I think that the claims choice tells you that Biden is just sort of returning back to the status quo ante, in effect, in terms of how you put together a White House, the kind of people you put in power and how you move forward structurally. Now, he may not be able to get away with the status quo ante in terms of policy or in terms of leadership because it's a different era, but in terms of staffing his White House, I think we'll see a lot of faces that are familiar to people in Washington.
2: Obama, Clinton, Carter, all terrific presidents, all came from outside of Washington and prided themselves appropriately on bringing a new class of leadership to populate the top tier of the government. Obviously not completely, but that was the ethos. Here we have something the Democratic Party hasn't seen in at least 50 years, maybe since LBJ, where it's accepted and trusted that the people who are closest to the president are deeply experienced, good and bad, at how Washington operates. It's it's just going to be interesting to return to that.
0: I think that's fair. And and everyone does know Ron Klain. And I think he's considered a affable person that they can talk to, a,
2: a sort of good cop.
0: So is there going
2: to be a bad cop here? It's a great question. The finest president of my lifetime, Barack Obama, amazingly put Rahm Emanuel. Right. Well, the ultimate bad cop, right? Not just a bad guy, but who believed it was saintly to get up every day and be a bad guy. An interesting decision (laughs) by Obama, who that is not his ethos to put that person in charge. So we don't have that in wrong claim. Now, I push back a little bit on the premise, whether you you have to be a bad person, male or female. they are extremely affable people who know how to say no and work with private sector ferocity to have them do the dirty work. So I'll, I'll sort of I'll push back on the premise, but I'll, I will point out Biden knows what he's doing.
0: Yeah, but that is a fair point. They 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 know how to apply the pressure. Can I sort of
4: disagree with that a little bit, at least? I mean, like I, yeah. forgetting the Republicans, OK, because obviously
0: the Republicans are going to be a unique
4: challenge. The question for me is how he's going to discipline or keep the Democrats behind him. I mean, one thing we've seen about Trump, we like him or hate him, he kept the Republicans behind him. They did not break with him, as we're seeing even today. And that's something we haven't seen, I think, by any president, frankly, going back many years. I mean, every other president, Republican and Democrat, had to deal with dissent within their own party. In fact, Quite often, that was the most frustrating part about being president. Certainly, that was true with Obama and Clinton, and sometimes with Bush during the Iraq War, and Reagan even. I mean, had a lot of Republicans from time to time would balk at him, including Dick Cheney, for instance, over a major tax bill, those kinds of things. And Trump basically didn't have that. He he, he had more uniformity, even though they didn't like him very much, among his Republican lawmakers than any president we've seen. Is Biden going to be able to enforce that kind of same discipline or is he going to be sitting there constantly dealing with whack-a-mole? Moderates up here are upset about this and the liberals are upset about that. And His coalition is yeah. so fragile to begin with. It was basically built on animus toward Donald Trump, not out of any ideological cohesion. So that to me is going to be a really interesting
1: challenge for him. One of the times I think you're going to see this come up pretty quickly is with who he picks for some of the more sensitive posts, yeah. thinking of it- Attorney General, thinking of Secretary of State. AOC tells the New York Times he can't pick Rom. Now, I don't know that Rom was in the running for anything in Biden's cabinet, but the fact that she said that in that interview I thought was noteworthy and sort of a warning shot of what's to come to Peter's point about some of the dem infighting that we've seen already, and to the extent that People, I think, had a, a conception that McConnell had such a long-standing relationship with Biden that they might be able to reach deals together given their past. I think that the past week has shown us that that may not be such a safe bet. I think that there was this idea that's even explored in President Obama's latest book about the idea that The first black president didn't get the same respect that some others had and that they were able to work with Biden in a way that they were tone deaf to the president. But I think that they're going to put up a fight on some of these nominees and it's going to expose some issues there with Democrats and the president elect.
2: It's a shimmer. It's an oasis to think that he's going to have that kind of hegemony among the Democrats. He's not. That's not who the Democrats are. One, two. You got some amazing evidence in front of you that he was able to do it from the basement. He ran a very disciplined campaign. He picked an African American woman yeah. to be the vice president—a woman, an African American, a South Asian—you know—in an interracial marriage. So he's shown some tremendous ability to navigate what is, by definition, our fractious party, and I and I think that will continue. But it's not going to be pleasant. Both the left and the right have very, very important intra-party. I won't say warfare, but serious conversations about who we are. And that's because the parties are movements treated as if they're C3 organizations, but they're movements and all movements are fractious.
0: Talk a little bit about what you see as the schism within the Republicans between the, well, who are the Jets and the Sharks there?
2: They're going to go back to regular order, which is what Reagan codified. And it was a I'll say conspiracy because I'm on the left. But it was an agreement between the Chamber of Commerce and the then Christian coalition, which was the moral majority, which is now the Federalist Society that said, we will each look the other way. You do what you need to do on social issues as long as we get deregulation and lower taxes. those two wings created a symbiotic political, I think we're going to go right back to that. And Stephen Schwartzman, who has been a rah-rah for Trump, is now going to have to figure out, does he stick with Trumpism? And I don't know if that's Tom Cotton or Nikki Haley or whom, or does he go back to the Chamber of Commerce Republican Party, where those he and he and his other CEOs were were happy for years. That's what I think is going to happen on the right. There's going to be the Trump mantle, which used to be the Christian Coalition, which used to be the Moral Majority, and it's going to be the Chamber of Commerce. Now, I'll stop with note the actual Chamber of Commerce. I was using that metaphorically. Actual Chamber of Commerce is figuring out how to get along with Democrats.
0: Yeah, got it. And uh, just a quick comment on the the more publicized divide within the Democratic Party. There may be a crazy way in which, assuming the Dems don't win both runoffs, Biden's path is a little easier with McConnell as majority leader, at least on some issues where he can just say, look, I've got to play ball with him versus trying to bring everyone from Joe Manchin to Sheldon Whitehouse along on a particular issue. Let me ask, is any of you watching a particular
2: appointment
0: that Biden's going to be announcing as a bellwether or tell about his presidency?
2: White House counsel and AG.
0: Same. Same.
4: Yeah, I'm. i i interested in what he does on Secretary of State, just because I think that it's interesting whether the election scrambled the choice. What, Susan Rice had seemed to be the obvious front runner prior to the election. Does that change because of McConnell still possibly controlling the Senate? I don't know. I think one thing is really interesting about that cabinet is all four top slots. The most obvious candidates for each of the four are women. And he can make a real statement, having already now chosen the woman as a vice president, if he gives those four slots to the candidates who seem most likely to in line anyway, right? Susan Rice at State, Lyle Brainerd at Treasury, Michelle Fournoy at Defense, and maybe maybe Sally Yates, but there are some more candidates at AG than, than just Sally Yates. And that, maybe the Sally Yates is also harder because of the Republican Senate, assuming they keep control.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking of A.G. also because of the very thing we were just discussing about Barr. He's got a lot of very solid candidates, but many of them come traditionally from the political world, even though they're perfectly qualified. And Adam Schiff, for example, but he may want to signal a real return to Quote unquote professionalism at the department. And that would weigh in favor of an old hand who's made his or her bones in the department itself, like a Sally Yates. Okay. Well, we'll be seeing this over the next few weeks. And my guess is that also will relate to what we were talking about up top. Once he's named four, five, six important cabinet members, the charade that, that Trump's trying to carry on will get harder and harder. Okay, it's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the terms and relationships that are foundational to the worlds of law and politics that we discuss. Today, we're continuing a sort of back-to-basic stretch about federal prosecutorial practice, explaining the charge of mail and wire fraud, which is sort of the all-purpose Swiss Army knife of the federal prosecutor. And to explain, we are very pleased to welcome Matt Terenauer. Matt's an American writer, director, producer, and journalist. He directed the documentaries Citizen Jane, Battle for the City, Studio 54, and Valentino, The Last Emperor, which was shortlisted for an Oscar nomination. He is also an award-winning journalist and is currently a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. So I give you Matt Tarnower on mail and wire
3: fraud. What is mail and wire fraud, and what is included within it? Federal prosecutors may only investigate and prosecute federal criminal and civil law, which under the Constitution is limited to certain subjects called enumerated powers. So for example, Congress could not pass a criminal law that prohibits all fraud. However, over the years, Congress has used its enumerated powers to pass criminal laws that cover a wide variety of subjects. A good example of this is the mail and wire fraud statutes, which were passed under Congress's power to establish the post office and regulate commerce. Violation of these statutes carries a term in federal prison of up to 30 years per offense. These crimes cover any fraudulent scheme that includes the use of mail or interstate wire communications. Wire communications include telephone and internet, and this language permits prosecution of a wide variety of frauds. The use of mail or wire communications does not have to be essential to the fraud, just a step in the plot. These crimes are a good example of how Congress can often, quote, make a federal case out of it. This is Matt Turnauer for Talking Feds.
0: Thanks very much, Matt Turnauer. Tiernauer is now working on The Reagans, a four-part docuseries set to premiere on Showtime in early 2021. Hi, Harry here. I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a service that can assess your needs and match you with your own licensed therapist. You can connect with them in a safe and private online environment, and you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling. It's also more affordable than traditional offline counseling. If you want to check out BetterHelp, you can do it for a 10% discount off your first month by going to BetterHelp. BetterHelp.com/talkingfeds. That's BetterHelp.com/talkingfeds.
5: Hi, I'm Julian Castro, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under President Obama, and a former presidential candidate. I'm now hosting my own podcast series with Lemonada Media called Our America. Despite growing up with modest means, I had the chance to pursue my own American dream. Unfortunately, my story is too often the exception. Facing poverty hunger, and sometimes discrimination, many Americans don't even have the chance to dream. I think we can do better. Our America is a hopeful, humanizing look at how dramatically the American experience shifts from one person to the next. Our America features the perspectives of everyday people, as well as community organizers, big thinkers, and cultural icons. Join us as we explore why the odds seem so stacked against so many, and what we can do to change that. Our America with Julian Castro premieres September 10th. Subscribe now, wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: All right. I wanted to talk just a little bit more about the campaign post-mortem. We're learning more things as the analysis comes in about the current state of American life. First, it does seem that for whatever reason, Biden was the right guy for this juncture. You had uh, a lot of Democrats tepid about him, but he outpolled many of the Democratic nominees for Senate. And it really seems like his elder statesman, good guy credentials were just the sort of anti-Trump tonic that the country was looking for.
4: Yeah, I would say so. Look, I mean, the Democrats won up the anti-Trump. The anti-Trump was somebody who was yeah. inoffensive and likable and didn't Polarized their own coalition. And that was who Biden turned out to be, right? Now, the problem for Biden or the challenge for Biden is translating that negative mandate into a positive mandate, right? The mandate that many Democrats saw in this election is we got rid of Trump, but they don't agree on what the positive mandate is. Okay, we want weeping legislation on climate change, on guns, on health care, all these trillion dollar plans that were put out there during the primaries, all of which seems sort of laughable given a Republican Senate. So we don't yet really know, I think how Biden takes this this election victory which is more to, more convincing than it looked like on election night but less than a Reagan-like sweep and translates that into the next 4 years other than not being Trump. I think that's the really interesting question going forward.
1: It's a convincing victory but given that we're still in the middle of a pandemic that has killed hundreds of thousands of people, it, it was a remarkably close race given given where we stand as a country, given the president's leadership on such an important issue, the, the number of people and conversations that I think all of us have had this week with people who are just confounded by that results, I think, tells you something about just the divide in the country, that people can live in almost two different universes in this country. I mean, I I don't know about where you were, Harry, but at least where I was in New York, the sounds were deafening, and not just for five minutes, but for hours. You walk the street, people are hugging, people are crying, people are clapping, horns are blaring. It's as if a dictator had been been dethroned. It's as if a, a war had ended. I mean, people talk about a pressure valve. I think it was way more emotional than that. And yet there are millions of people who are extremely disappointed who think this entire thing was rigged to use the president's word and have no confidence in our electoral system and so i think there there are questions to be thought about how the media tells that story better and how we get to the divide better you know we do profiles on All these little pockets of the country, but I still think there's so much more work to be done to explain better how you can just live in two different universes here in order to try to get to to what happened last week.
2: Well, one one thing the Democrats do cycle after cycle after cycle is refuse to figure out how to talk to evangelical whites. And increasingly, they've sort of written them off as an other world. Well, it's United States of America. Guess what? I don't know if they're a plurality, but it's a very significant block. And I point to the Democrats' success with evangelical African-Americans as exhibit A that you can be deeply religious, you can worry about reproductive rights, you can worry even about homosexuals like me and still vote Democratic. But the party apparatus and all of the sort of concentric circles around it, the Sierra clubs and the human rights campaigns and the other that make up the progressive establishment have yet to figure out a strategy to speak to evangelical whites in a way that's remotely respectful. And it's malpractice. It's a political malpractice.
0: Yeah, I mean, y- you would think that if ever they had the opportunity, having Trump as their banner waiver really gave an opening. But you're right, you know, the evangelical community stuck with him. Love the sinner, hate the sin, plus the judges. But let's go to the race question, actually, because I think a lot of people were Perplexed, or at least found it noteworthy, that Trump marginally increased his vote among African Americans and pretty significantly among Hispanics. And is that a harbinger of trouble going forward for the the Democrats?
4: First of all, it's a harbinger of, of trouble for the political world to, and a reminder not to, to make assumptions about people based on categories. Yeah. That we are we we got to be much more careful about that. I think we are too easy to say. X type of people, demographics, whether it be racial or religious or gender or whatever, fit into this kind of box, and they don't, and they don't, and and you know he was probably our most racially incendiary president we've seen going back decades, if not longer. And yet, you're right. There's a really interesting result in some of these exit polls. How much we can believe the exit polls, of course, is up for grabs. But it does seem like he increased his numbers now. Among the African American vote is still relatively small, right? It's still, it's still. Yeah, I think 8%. It was like better among African-American men than terrible among African-American women. Among Hispanics, I think it was something like 39% or something like
0: that. And it was decisive in Florida, although that it's always sui generis Florida. But, but it yeah. reminds you, right?
4: All Hispanics are not the same. Don't, don't treat them the same. Cubans and Venezuelans and Salvadorans and Mexicans. Everybody has their own different history and culture and, and, and background. And even within those communities, people have different points of view about things. And I think that, you know, he did well among Hispanics who take the, the, the abortion issue seriously and, and are, are maybe very Catholic and, and think that that was an important issue for them. I think he's, there are obviously some people who are here who think Cuba is the most important issue. There are some who came here illegally and resent people who come here illegally and therefore might have agreed with his anti-immigrant rhetoric, even, as, even if they were themselves a product of families that came here at some point earlier. Uh, in the, in these decades and centuries. So, you know, we have to be careful about oversimplifying uh, complicated
2: communities. And the meta here, it's similar to what I said about white evangelicals. The party apparatus has not made the emotional decision that Latinos in the United States who are 58 million people are your peers. It, they are treated like African-Americans used to be treated as fungible widgets that get moved around an electoral chessboard every two or four years. And in fact, it is the fabric of America. And I'll, you know, I'll do a sort of a distinction to show the disparity between how the Democratic Party treats different groups. Jewish Americans, of which I am one, you know, were much smaller. But the Democratic Party can tell you down to the minion the difference between a Jew in Curious Joel or Williamsburg, as opposed to one on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, as opposed to a South Florida condominium Jew, as opposed to an Austin Jew. <laughs> They can tell you everything they need to know about that voter profile. And when it comes to Latinos, it's, it is just a huge brown iceberg. There is zero investment. And when I say zero, I am not being funny. There is zero investment in figuring out the nuance. And an exciting piece to look at is similar Mexican-Americans, that is very diverse groups of Mexican-Americans, behave wildly differently in Arizona and Nevada than they did in South Texas. Very similar polyglot of Mexican-Americans, mixed immigrant communities, et cetera, et cetera. It's about organizing, it's about respect, it's about letting Latinos lead the effort. So I'm excited that hopefully this will be a wake-up call to say, I have the hope to both parties, but clearly the Democratic Party, guess what? There's tremendous complexity and richness here, and if you want it, you got to fight for it.
0: Great point. There's one other sort of nugget that's emerging from the postmortem of the election that in some ways speaks to the depth and the persistence of the partisan divide. Apparently, the pollsters are learning that Republicans, in a statistically meaningful way, are less likely to respond to pollsters in the first place. And that's part of what made for the, again, not, not 2016 levels, but still some important miscalculations. And it also, to me, the most likely explanation is that in, in the age of Trump, they're less likely to trust any institution. And then that goes for the pollsters who are calling them up and asking, you know, who they're going to vote for. All right. So those are the bigger lessons learned, I think, from the election, which now blessedly stays behind us, we hope. We have time now just for our last feature of five words or fewer, where we take a question from a listener and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. Our question today is from Billy Schaff, who asks, Do the Democrats have a credible chance of winning both Georgia runoffs? And if so, what is the key for them?
2: Yes, turnout.
1: Yes, Stacey Abrams. Credible, but I wouldn't bet House.
4: (laughs) (laughs)
0: Long shot, but Abrams efforts. (laughs) Thank you very much to Peter, Laura, and Robert. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts, and please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web. TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers... The Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Rebecca Lopatin. Our editor is Justin Wright. David Lieberman and Rosie Don Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Matt McArdle. Our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Thanks very much to Matt Ternauer for his sidebar on mail and wire fraud. Our gratitude goes out. As always, to the wonderful Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.